this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Dan Callahan, author of the book, The Camera Lies, Acting for Hitchcock, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. Alfred Hitchcock was famously quoted as saying, actors are cattle, but obviously his point was more nuanced than it may seem. In our talk, Dan and I review how the director worked with his actors, as well as why Hitchcock was so successful working with certain actors regularly. Welcome, Dan Callahan. Hi, Dan. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. So your book, The Camera Lies, Acting for Hitchcock, was just published by Oxford University Press, and I'm glad to speak with you about it. I'm happy to talk with you about it as well. So anyone who has any familiarity about Hitchcock knows about his supposed quote about all actors being cattle, or some form of that quote. Mm -hmm. But obviously his point was more nuanced, even if he admitted he said it. Uh, So I'm glad we're going to get a chance to examine it. But before we get into the book, I wanted to get some details about your background. You've written on film for many publications, including RogerEbert.com. And then you also have three previous books, one on Barbara Stanwyck, one on Vanessa Redgrave, and then one also about American acting. So this is your first book about a director. What led you down the path to writing about film? Well, you know, it all began for me with Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I grew up in Chicago, and when I was eight years old, Channel 9 in Chicago showed five Hitchcock films on weeknights. And I was fascinated by them. I think it was Vertigo they showed, the second Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, Rope, I believe. And I just loved them. And my mother bought me a book called The Films of Alfred Hitchcock by Patrick Humphreys. And it was this big book with photographs. And I loved it. And I thought it was really great. And I would you know, look through it. I would bring it to school with me. And Blockbuster Video had just opened at that point. And my mother took me there. And they had an entire Hitchcock section there. And so I remember the first things I rented were Blackmail, his first talkie, and I think Marnie I rented. And, you know, all the early British films were there. And so as a kid, I had, you know, the list of films and I would, you know, put little check marks next to them. And so really it all began uh, with Hitchcock for me. And so, you know, I've made uh, my career as a journalist writing about film and also theater, but it all goes back to him. And I had wanted to write a Hitchcock book, but I always thought, you know, there are so many of them already that I didn't know, you know, exactly what I would have to say that would be new. And then because I write about acting so much, 
I thought, you know, if I did something about acting in Hitchcock, maybe there might be something there. Um, and I write for this British uh, film magazine called Sight and Sound. And my editor there, James Bell, we, there was a point a few years ago when he, the BFI put together a book about Hitchcock, and he asked me to write an, an article about acting in Hitchcock. And I think that's what sort of started me thinking, you know, there might be something here that I can make into a book because I, I felt like I had more to say about it. Um, and so, so, so really, it's a culmination of a lifelong interest uh, in Hitchcock for me because it, it's the source of everything in my life, really. So, well, that answer obviously was going to be one of my other questions, which was, when did Hitchcock come on oh. your radar? Obviously, very early on. At the very beginning. <laughs> it's good that yeah. you actually had a a parent who let you. I mean, I'm not sure how old you were exactly, but I mean, let you. Well, I was eight. No, well, there you go. To, to dive into Hitchcock at that <laughs> age, I think, is a pretty remarkable thing. Oh, yes. When, and when I was 10, they got me an Alfred Hitchcock birth cake. They got birthday cake. They got the bakery to make the, the bakery did the uh, profile. They somehow knew how to do the profile. And I've got pictures of me as a 10 year old with my Alfred Hitchcock birthday cake and, you know, posters from his movies, which I had up in my bedroom. So, you know, I was very big on Hitchcock when I was a little kid. <laughs> That's interest. I mean, what's interesting about it is that, uh, you know, Hitchcock, obviously, and you were actually going to early Hitchcock pretty, pretty soon in your pretty early on in your, yes. in your review, you know, your, your viewing of Hitchcock, you actually didn't waste a lot of time getting to the early ones. You know, from the beginning, because, you know, those British movies that Hitchcock made at that time, they were in the public domain. And so really they floated around quite a bit. You know, any any little video outfit could put out the British uh, films, and yeah, you know, a lot of the qu the quality was very poor a lot of the time. But as a kid, I didn't care about that. As an adult, you know, I think it, we're very lucky now that there are these beautiful restorations of the films and looking better than than they ever did. You know, but at that time, it was <clears throat> you know public domain, and so they circulated quite a bit those early uh, British films of his. Sort of like it's a wonderful life for. Previous, for a period of time, it was supposedly in the public domain, so everybody in the world was putting out a version of it. But as you, as like your Hitchcock ones, they were all pretty poor, pretty quality. poor quality. And now, of course, we have right. these. Uh, like it, we even have four Hitchcock films now that have just been reissued and just been remastered in 4K. So uh, it's yeah. great. It's Hitchcock. We've been lucky in that uh, uh, his films are in good shape and to a large extent, and they've been able to. Uh, put them yes, together. There's only one that's lost. His his second film, The Mountain Eagle, is the only one that. And then what, he did a thing, uh, a first film that he didn't finish. But then the The Mountain Eagle, his second film, is the only lost Hitchcock film. They had, they found a bunch of stills. There used to be just a few, like six or so stills that are in the Hitchcock Truffaut book. But a few years ago, they found more stills of it. And so there's kind of man tied up next to Nita Naldi in it. So that's the one that everybody's scouring the world for. Is The Mountain Eagle. But in general, yeah, there's a lot. A lot of them are around. They, the BFI just did a restoration of the silent film, and his first film, The Pleasure Garden, is actually a restoration of it. That there's about a half hour more footage, which is quite a bit more footage, and it hasn't been released yet on DVD, unfortunately. And so every all the Hitchcock uh, uh, aficionados are really waiting for that to be put out on DVD because it was shown at the BFI. But, you know, it, it has not been uh, put out on DVD yet. We were all waiting for that. 
And in addition, I know the Criterion channel uh, has a lot, of, you know, regularly has available his early British, many of his early British films. And beautiful restorations. I mean, they, they do, they've got the really famous ones. You know, the first man who knew too much, 39 steps and the lady vanishes criterion has these very nice restorations. Um, and then, you know, the, the, and then the BFI has put out a lot of their restorations of the other ones. I'm very big on a movie called Rich and Strange, which he co-wrote with his wife Alma from 1931. That one, I think, is just, uh, just a beautiful film and very fresh, very original. And not a, it isn't a thriller, you know. It, it's uh, it's about a marriage, and it, it's very free and very uh, very personal to Hitchcock. I think I like that one a lot. So, obviously, since Hitch, what I guess my question would be: What took you so long to get to the point of writing a book about Hitchcock? Was it mostly trying to figure out how to to come at the subject? Because, as you've pointed out, obviously, is there's been so many books about Hitchcock that did the world need another one? And yet, what's funny is a couple of the blurbs you have on the book, people are saying that exact thing. Yes, we needed this book because it filled in some holes that uh, and added some more nuance to an already well-written-about career. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, as, as, as you said, uh, there was you know, a period of years where I, where I thought, you know, there is no new angle. But really, you know, there hadn't been a book just about his work with actors. I think most people do know that quote of his actors are cattle. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, a lot of the actors gave their best performances in Hitchcock movies. Like Robert Walker in Strangers on a Train, Anthony Perkins in Psycho. And a lot of those are, it's casting. He loves this idea of taking, you know, like Robert Walker and Anthony Perkins were both kind of male ingenues. They played these kind of innocent, bumbling boyfriend type parts. And then to, to suddenly make them into these killers was a shocker. And he loved playing with audience expectation that way. That's the thing. He loved to take someone, you know, the, the surface of them and then flip it on its end and see, oh, the, the, this person might actually be the opposite of what they look like, you know, here. So let's go ahead and get into this all actors are cattle quote, because obviously he wasn't being mm -hmm. literal in the sense that in, in, in a way that it may have originally sound. But you talk a lot in the introduction about more or less the, the basics of what he meant by this. I know it's uh, hard to go into a lot of detail given that it's so there's so much nuance to it. But where did well, he, I mean, you know, really. Oh, oh go ahead. Now, that, that's what I was going to ask you is talk a little bit about what you what you found in reviewing this whole concept of all actors are cattle. Well, I think the important thing to realize about that is that he said it during the 1930s when he was working in England. And the thing that why he said it is because he was working with these theater actors like Peggy Ashcroft, John Gielgud, and Michael Redgrave. Um, and they were you know, doing Chekhov at night or Shakespeare, and then they were doing his thrillers during the day. And what he didn't like is that they weren't taking his movies seriously. They thought, oh, this is just a paycheck. We're going to do our real work at night. And he picked up on that. He was very, very alert to things like that. So I think he, Michael Redgrave said that uh, he said his actors were cattle, quote, when they were working together during The Lady Vanishes. And so, and also, you know, there were people like that, theater actors who didn't take his work seriously. And then there were, uh, you know, actors and actresses who were in his films, and they didn't even take acting seriously. 
And so that was the way that he, you know, came up in the world. And that's why he said that. Whereas I think the wonderful thing is when he went to America, the actors were serious about their craft in a way a lot of the British actors weren't. Uh, and then they were also serious about his film. So that, you know, by the time he was making Psycho, he, he loved that Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee took their part very seriously to the point where, you know, Anthony Perkins wanted to change his lines a little bit and add little details. And Hitchcock liked that because he knew he was taking it seriously. And he would sit by the camera and read, you know, the thoughts that Janet Lee is having when she's driving in the car and all that. So by that point, you know, he was more proactive. I think it was, he said that after the cattle line, it was kind of in a spirit of hurt feelings more than anything else. I don't think he really meant it so seriously. He would make a joke out of it, you know, later on. But I think in the, also in the 30s, you know, which I, just, I discovered, he gave a lot of interviews where he would talk about acting very seriously and in great detail, uh, what he wanted from an actor and what an actor could do on screen uh, with the camera. So, you know, I, th I think uh, he really was serious about it. And I think the actors of cattle, as I say, was just more hurt feelings than anything else. Well, I think uh, one of the things that comes out is, is that and he comes back to that statement many times during his career. I mean, it's not like he said it once and then just let it sit there. He did he did discuss it. It was, a, it was a fun publicity thing. He was a master of publicity as well as everything else. And so he knew it was something that made the public laugh. He liked, you know, it's the same thing as uh, that, oh, he had everything you know done in the script stage and he storyboarded everything, which was part of his image, but it wasn't necessarily true. Um, like, for example, when he did North by Northwest, the crop dusting scene, he actually didn't storyboard that scene. But after he was, he, you know, he did it spontaneously. But after he was done with it, he had the makeup storyboards because he knew that was his image and he, he wanted to keep up that image, you know. And so with him, there's always what publicity you know, and image was, which you know, he was very savvy about that. And then his actual thoughts and feelings which tended to be a bit more sensitive and a bit more spontaneous than the image that he was putting out there. So obviously, you're, in your book, you go through all of Hitchcock's films um, chronologically. How long did this, I mean, obviously you'd seen all of them, or I assume all of them enough times where this was not going to be a brand new uh, experience, but how long did the this part, because obviously much of what you did was based on viewing, um, how long did the, that process take and how long would you spend on each film? Was it a matter that you would watch one and then come back to it? Or, or did you just sort of study each film individually for a while and then move on to the next one? Or more or less, what was your process? Well, it, it differed with certain films. All of, I'd seen all of the films before and I'd seen, you know, since I was eight years old. And so I'd seen all of them. I was very familiar with a lot of them. But what's interesting about Hitchcock films, I found, is that you know he himself thought that people could watch his films more than once and would they could get you know something out of it that they hadn't seen before and so really what was interesting is that they're kind of like magic acts in that I I watched them all chronologically and took notes um, and then I started to write about them but then I found that when I was writing about them it's very very easy to get details wrong. Even though there's these films I've seen them many times over most of my life, they're so, the 
there's something about the editing and there's something about what goes on in them that it's very easy to get details wrong. Oh, did he come through the door? What happened there? And so I, I found that I had to go through all of them again a second time while I was you know, trying to write about them from the notes. So chronologically again. So in a relatively short period, I looked at them all chronologically and took notes. I started writing about them, and then I found I really didn't need to look at all of them chronologically again. And then in the case of there was one time with uh, Notorious, which is maybe my favorite Hitchcock film, and that's why it's on the cover of the book, Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant and Notorious. There was one day that I watched Notorious three times in a row during the day, and I pretty much just lived in Notorious. And I kept seeing more things and more things, and I getting deeper and deeper into it. And really, I think that was maybe the most intensely pleasurable part of the writing process was that one day when I was watching Notorious over and over again, you know, um, and just getting deeper and deeper into it. Uh, now, there, there's a few films, though, that are maybe a little lesser that they're, they're a little dead for me. I've gotten a little bit tired of them. Um, but, you, you know, most of them are very, very fresh. Rear Window, I think if you, you know, if Rear Window is on, television or rear window is around it tends to sweep you up into it you know like you, it, it's always fresh there's something about it that it's all and part of it is the the dialogue by john michael hayes the, 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 i think that's just a perfect movie that might be his best movie it's, it's between rear window and notorious for me if i was to choose and then the wrong man i'm very big on that so that's a movie that i'm not it's not something that you want to watch all the time Rear Window is so pleasurable. And I think The Wrong Man is a great movie, but it's, it's very, very depressing. <laughs> it's a very sad movie and a great movie, though. So how, and obviously you've got these broken down into multiple chapters. Is there a particular, re I mean, obviously, if you're only doing them chronologically, the order is obvious, but uh, is there reasons why you broke your groups in specific ways? Or is it just for length? There, I think it, it's mainly um, if I was it's mainly to do with length. You know, if I was if I was writing a, quite a bit about one film, it might get its own chapter. Right. I Black definitely blackmail, for example, to, gets its own chapter. Right, because I was going basically scene by scene through it. Um, I knew that I wanted to group the last six kind of major films that came in a row, starting with the wrong man. And Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, and Marnie. I knew I wanted to do all of them together because there's something about that run of great movies all in a row that even though I was writing a great deal about all of them, I wanted to treat them all together. Um, so, so I think, and then, and then the, the, the silent period, there were six silent films in a row where I wasn't writing as much about them. And so it seemed that they should be grouped together. And so it just, it came out of really a sense of length on one hand, and then some, sometimes it just seemed as if films belonged together. You know, um, in the case of Strangers on a Train, and I confess, I think part of that, that was there was a, quite a bit on Strangers on a Train and not so much on I Confess. And so that, that really is the two of them came together just because of length. One of the things you mentioned briefly in the introduction that I wanted to at least mentioned because I think it's worth, uh, it sort of helps with a, this concept of how he viewed actors. Um, one of the things that we now know because footage has come out is that Hitchcock 
was involved in taking films during war during the end of World War II. And um, you talk a little bit about how he worked with the camera people in um, making that footage. Uh, what were some of what? What did he say? How? Because you talk about it, about how he wanted well, the, can, the people to be viewed. That's fascinating because it shows how much he understood film, and it also shows how much he understood that particular situation. And when he was tasked with making the film of the liberated concentration camp, what he told his technicians was, you know, if you, you know his movies, you know there's quite a bit of cutting. He likes montage. He likes short shots of things. He told them, don't break it up. Make it so that it was, he, he knew that people were going to say, oh, this could have been fake. Oh, this could be a Holocaust smile. He knew that that was, was, was something that people would want to do. And so he said to the technician, just film it. Don't, you know, we want long takes of it and we want, we want it as simple as possible and not cut up in any way. Just, you know, take it as straight on as possible, which is the opposite of the way he worked with his fiction film. But it, I think it shows how smart he was about movies and also about human nature. That he, he knew that people were going to want to say it was fake, and that he wanted to try the best he could to make it you know, look like this could not have been fake. It's just we're just putting the camera on it, and here it is, you know, without cutting or anything else that might distract or may, might make people think, "Oh, this is this is fake in some way." Right. One of the things that you make points you make is that Hitchcock was most successful with certain kinds of actors. Um, it's obvious, you know, he tended to work with a lot of, you know, it's not unusual for him to use certain actors multiple times. Um, it, but I guess the way I can put it is they act, they could act quietly as a manner of speaking. Um, give me some examples of what this meant for him. I mean, he talked about, you know, the idea that you want less but you want to be able to present it on the screen. There has to be something there, but uh, I'm, I'm having problems exactly explaining it as you did, but uh, the, the idea of the actor at first glance may seem that there's not much there, but there really is. Well, I think the thing with him is that he wanted the actor to be hiding something that could maybe be revealed or not. He wanted the actor to seem as if they had a secret or you know, there, there's, there's something they look like an ingenue, but actually they're a killer. They look like a killer, but actually they're, they're a sweetheart. You know, whereas, you know, Betty Davis, who was on one of Hitchcock's uh, TV shows, she's someone who shows you everything. And she, she's a great actress, but she's someone who she doesn't keep anything in reserve. There isn't anything secret. She shows you every you know, bit. And that's what's great about her. But for Hitchcock's purposes, it doesn't work at all. Because she, and also, she's the auteur. She's the one who has the, she's the artist. And she's going to, you know, a Betty Davis movie is a Betty Davis movie. And, you know, and, or someone like Catherine Hepburn is maybe like that as well. He can't really use, you know, these really dominant figures who show you everything very definitely. Whereas the ultimate Hitchcock actors, I think, are Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. Because the two of them are never definite about anything. They're always on the fence. They're always in some kind of transition. 
And so he can make use of them, you know, whereas he can't really use the people who are flashy. Um, and I, I think that's why there, there isn't too much, you know, they, they would give Academy Awards to these very flashy actors. And Joan Fontaine is the only one who won an Oscar for Hitchcock's work. And they didn't nominate him very much, you know, after he was done, uh, with you know, being under contract with David Selznick. There were a lot of nominations for his actors, a lot of the time in supporting parts in, in the, during the 1940s. But once he's done with his Selznick contract, even though there are all these great performances during the 50s, the only one who got nominated is Janet Lee and Psycho and supporting. Um, so, you know, the, the, the things that got attention, you know, attention for, for acting, you know, and also if they didn't take his movie seriously. Again, it's this thing of, we take them seriously now. Hitchcock's whole image then was, I'm the master of suspense. These are entertainments. These are rides. And the great thing about Hitchcock is they are entertainments. You can be, you can just enjoy them, but you can also see a lot in them. And there's a lot there because he was working from the unconscious. You know, it wasn't, I think a bad film director is someone who says, this is what my film is about. And this is the message that you're supposed to get from it. Hitchcock isn't like that at all. In his writing sessions with his writers, it was always uh, approaching things indirectly. You, he could only get to the places that he got to by you know, kind of creeping up on something and being unconscious about it, a kind of dream logic. You know, he was always you know, a little contemptuous of what he called the plausible, the people who said, that wouldn't have happened there or this wouldn't have happened. I think the most brilliant thing he says in uh, the Hitchcock Truffaut book, the interview book, he, he says to Francois Truffaut, you can't put something in your script uh, that happened to you. And it's very, it's very implausible. But you, you say, but I actually saw it. It actually happened in life. You can't put that isn't a good enough reason to put it in your script. If you, if something implausible happened, it, 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 it doesn't matter. It, ha- it needs to have its own kind of dream logic. And if it, if it actually happened in life, it didn't matter. He wasn't very big on life and reality. <laughs> and I don't blame him. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. But on the other hand, he seemed to constantly write stories or make movies that were based on the everyman, the, the, the typical normal person that gets involved in an unusual situation. And it's like he wanted to make sure that the realism part came through and somebody who was a big actress or actor might not necessarily be able to pull that off well. Oh, well, I mean, I think there's a certain type of star that for his, you know, wrong, the wrong man type movies, the chase movies, he wanted, you know, for instance, he wanted Gary Cooper quite a bit, and he never got him. He liked a Gary Cooper, a Jimmy Stewart, a Henry Fonda, because what Hitchcock said is they're like one of the family, in a way. They're, they're, it is, as you say, like a kind of everyman. And so if this terrible thing is happening to Jimmy Stewart or to Henry Fonda, 
you're going to feel bad about it. Um, I think though there are you know, slight differences with him. Whereas as I think with the wrong man, that's the only time he worked with Henry Fonda. What I say in my book is, if Jimmy Stewart had played that part, it would play very differently because Jimmy Stewart is a bit more of a hothead. You know, like if he gets angry, he's going to get really angry. Whereas Henry Fonda, he's a little more severe and he's a little more passive, and that's why you know, it, it's agonizing in that movie because he never quite stands up for himself. Whereas if Jimmy Stewart was playing that part in The Wrong Man, when he stands up to the policeman, there would be more relief. There would be more, like, you would know that, you know, Jimmy Stewart was going to fight, you know. Whereas Henry Fonda accepts things in, a, in, this, in this passive, repressed way that makes it so, so sad and agonizing. So there are little differences. Um, but I think he wanted, as you say, the everyman type quality so that we could project. He wanted a, a kind of, with the men and women, a kind of blank screen in a way that we could do the acting for them, that we could project. He wanted the audience to act more than the actors themselves a lot of the time. Well, it's the idea of putting yourself in. You, the audience, puts themselves into the, into the, to the role. They sympathize or empathize uh even if the per you know depending on the person where they can understand what the person is going through because it seems logical or real right i mean the most famous example is the shower scene in psycho i think that you know it terrified a generation and people beyond that because what could be more vulnerable and like, like every in the way that it's shot it's as if you like you are the person being killed you know, and he himself said, you know, I always put myself into the you know, shoes of the victim, but I also see it from the point of view of the villain. You know, he, he could see both sides of it. And that's why it's so upsetting. And because it, it's so involving. You're, you're very involved. You, in a Hitchcock movie, you never sit back passively. You know, you're always involved as if you are up there, as if you're both of them at the same time. You aren't just, you know, a lot of, in his best thing, and you're both of them. Sometimes he'll do point of view shots and he only wants you to be in the point of view of the one person. But a lot of the time it's both. Like the murder scene in Sabotage with Sylvia Sidney and Oscar Homolka where she, he killed her young brother and she keeps looking at the knife and it's as if the editing is compelling her to stick the knife into him. That's a scene where you are involved with both of them. And the editing makes you feel like both of them at the same time. And it's, that's why it's such a thrilling thing, the way he's able to make you feel for both people in a situation, in a very extreme situation. We obviously know he had more, what's the word I want you, different or, or issues with female actors. Um, and when, yeah. you know, that's one of the things that, we tend to hear a lot about is is those kind of issues and some of them would probably be problematic in the 21st century but what were some of the examples i mean obviously it's not as cut and dried as that sounds i'm you know we, this tends to be the case with anyone well known you hear about the more unusual things but then it's really there's more to it than that so let's get into that a little bit you talk a lot in the sure. book and also in the introduction about his own issues with sexuality and sex and and that this may have had something to do with the way he treated female actors. Well, 
he was obsessed with sex and he had no real sexual life. Um, and so what happened is it was a, a lifelong kind of pressure on him. Whereas with women in the early films, the 30s and 40s, Ingrid Bergman, he would fall in love with them or with Grace Kelly and so forth. But it would be channeled into the films themselves. There was nothing that he could or did do about it. Um, what happened in the early 60s with Tippi Hedren, who is alive now and 90 years old, and for 20 years she's been doing interviews and books and this and that, it, 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 he had a kind of breakdown or a, a, it's like the pressure finally broke. And what happened with her is he plucked her from obscurity. She had no acting career. Uh, when he cast her in The Bird. And so she was his protege. And you know, he was in his early 60s then. And he was drinking quite a bit. Um, and I think what has to be understood about that is that there was this repression for decades. And then so finally, in his early 60s, it broke. And he, and he had this woman under his control. And he behaved very badly with her. But it isn't the sort of thing where, oh, he was behaving badly with all of the women. He wasn't, and partly because he didn't have control over Ingrid Bergman. She would boss him around, actually. He was in love with her, and but she, she was a big star and had her own career. And a lot of the other women, too. Tippi Hedren was different in that she didn't. She was under contract to him. And so it was, it was this, this dark side emerged with her. And, you know, it's, they made two great movies together and she's very, very good in them. And I think it's very unfortunate what happened between them. But I, I also think it needs to be understood the, the kind of narrative of it, the sort of that, that this, it wasn't like he was doing this his entire life. There was this pressure on him this entire life that finally exploded in this one instance with her. Um, so, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, the two movies that they made together are two of his very best movies and she's really very good in them. So I think you're right though. I mean, the fact that she can still talk about it and has, um, at least in some way, but you're right. There is a number of other actresses who, who we worked with multiple times who never had a negative thing to say about him. And in fact, absolutely loved working with him. Right. Well, I think it's, I think things have gotten a little distorted because Tippi Hedren has been around for so long, talking for so long. I think what a lot of people don't understand is that she wasn't an actress when he cast her in The Bird. She had no career of her own. And when she was under contract to him, like it was all from him. So really, if he had even wanted to with these other women, you know, which he, he, he wouldn't have been able to. They had their own lives. They had their own careers. Um, and, you know, Kim Novak, who's still alive, Eva Marie Saint, who's still alive, worked with him in Vertigo and North by Northwest. They had very positive experiences with him. And this was right before the Tippi Hedren. Um, <clears throat> so there's something happened with him in the early 60s, where, as I say in my introduction, I think that, you know, he must have thought it's now or never. I'm in my early 60s. This is that nothing has ever happened with me and these women that I'm, you know, in love with or obsessed with, and so he behaved very badly with her. But it, it isn't. It isn't. This, this, I think people think, oh, it, it happened with everyone, or that 
you know, it, it happened in this particular instance because she didn't have any career and she was under his power, really. And there are a lot of things that we don't know because he isn't here to be able to, you know, we can't ask him about it. It is all coming from her. And I, you know, I think she was, you know, really uh, tormented by him, but she also got a career that she didn't have before. So as I say in my book, it's, it's, it's almost this, this kind of Faustian bargain in a way. But anyway. There are two specific films, and you'll understand what I'm asking as we go. Uh, the first I want to talk about briefly is Mr. and Mrs. Smith, partly because it's a comedy. And mm -hmm. Hitchcock and comedy aren't terms that you tend to uh, put in the same, you know, area all the time. And yet, it was with Carol Lombard, and it was definitely a film that is different, you know, was out of type for him. And yet he and Carol Lombard were actually worked well together. What was what was he like as a comedy director? Well, that's a really interesting instance. Mr. and Mrs. Smith is not a well-known movie of his. I try to make a big case for it in my book because I think it's fascinating um, that it, it's different from his other movies in that he always, with other projects, it was he and his and his wife Alma and a writer. He he would come up with the script himself a good deal of the time. Mister and Missus Smith, the script was already written. Everything was already in place, and Carol Lombard just wanted him to direct her in a movie, and he loved her, and he thought she was just great. She was the opposite of these British women that he had been working with, who didn't take his movie seriously, who were somewhat repressed, prim, you know. Carol Lombard swore like a sailor, and she was this very free American woman, beautiful and you know, lively. And so he took it on because he wanted to work with her. And what, what interests me about it is you know, there is humor in Hitchcock's thrillers, quite you know, Lady Vanishes or Rear Window. There, there, are, there are laughs, there's fun, the funny things happen, and then the thrills start. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is, is a comedy, a screwball comedy, a kind of romantic comedy which you know, is a foreign genre for Hitchcock. But what fascinates me about it is that he takes this romantic comedy, and if you look at it very closely, there are all kinds of dark undercurrents going on. You know, if, you, if you didn't know that Hitchcock had directed this movie, you might not be looking for them. But if you, if you really look closely at, at what is happening in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, there's all kinds of little things that are going on that are that are quite dark, you know. That, that he brings out the, the you know the the dark side of romantic comedy uh, as a genre. That, that something bad very well might happen in the midst of this romantic comedy. I think there's tension. There's all kinds of things going on. And then also, it's a film about marriage, like Rich and Strange, the movie I was talking about before, that also isn't too well known. And marriage is a is a subject that Hitchcock is always very interested in. So, I mean, really, I think that movie is a fascinating movie and it deserves to be you know, better known and you know, written about more. Um, but, you know, as I say, he brought out the dark undercurrent of this genre that wasn't really his genre. Right. But it's good to hear because, like I say, that's one of those things where Carol Lombard, I mean, people know of her and she's been written about plenty, but there's another actress who we can talk about. I mean, you know, it's just unbelievable how much more could be written about her. 
Oh, she, I mean, yes, yeah, she's the, she's one of the great uh, stars of that time. Um, and, you know, really had to wait for a little bit until she really, you know, caught her stride with the screwball comedies. And then once she did, you know, she, she's such an American, you know, archetype, this, this very liberated woman, this very sporty type, type woman, blonde and beautiful and brainy and, you know, spontaneous. And really, as I say, the opposite of a lot of these, you know, if you're watching Hitchcock's British movies and a lot of these, you know, these very refined uh, women, you know, that's all gone now. But we have to remember that's the culture that Hitchcock grew up in. It's just incredibly repressed British culture where class was very important. You know, being a lady was very important, being a gentleman. And he hated all that. He couldn't stand it, which is why going to America, it was a great liberation for him. So the other one then, and it sort of comes right into what you just talked about, is his decision to do the man who to remake the man who knew too much uh first time the british version which as you just pointed out and then uh the american version of the man who knew too much it's unusual for anybody any uh director to remake their own film unfortunately somebody chose to make remake cycle and i'll never understand that concept in the first place let alone the result of it but anyway what did you see in your viewings of the tomb the man who knew too much related to his changes over time, particularly with acting? Well, I think it's very interesting because the, you know, the first man who knew too much is British. And so the couple at its center is British. And they have this very British way of you know, talking to each other and revealing absolutely nothing and the sort of raillery between the two of them. Whereas the later one, it's an American couple. And so, as I think Robin Wood writes about in his great Hitchcock book, there's an enormous difference culturally between the British couple and the American couple. And then, of course, the British film is short. You know, it's only around 75 minutes. It's in black and white, and it's got a great villain in Peter Lorre. Whereas the American version, it's twice as long. It's in color. It has these on-location you know, shots. Uh, and then it has this American marriage which is very unhappy. And I think it's definitely worth noting that uh, Hitchcock had wanted a kind of humorous, satirical American couple. But John Michael Hayes, who wrote the screenplay, he wrote this, you know, they're American couple who are very unhappy. She's given up her career. She takes pills all the time. They fight all the time. And in the most famous scene in it, after their boy has been kidnapped, he forces her to take tranquilizers and then tells her that the boy has been kidnapped. And it plays, you know, very badly now. This thing of like this man, you know, tranquilizing her. Even the, even the, so, you know, Hitchcock though wasn't all that interested. He went through with it. It really came from John Michael Hayes. That was his interest, was to see that like this woman is being oppressed by by her husband. You know, so, so whereas in the original, it's this British couple. And they, they, you know, she flirts with men and they joke about it and you don't really know what's going on, uh, between them. Whereas it's very obvious what's going on in the later film is that they have this pretty bad marriage and, you know, who, who knows if it's going to continue or if they're just going to go on being unhappy. Uh, you know, I say in my book that I think most likely, uh, Doris Day's character is probably going to make a comeback as a singer after all the publicity about saving her son and all that. I don't think she can't 
she can't possibly go on just being a wife and mother because she has much too much drive. And, you know, it's this thing of really take pills in order to, you know, uh, she, she, she needs something to do. Women need something to do. And that's what, that's what the, that movie is about. Um, I don't know if Hitchcock is all that interested in it, though. As I say, it was the screenwriter more than anything else. But you're right. It was. It's a big, you know. You've got the orchestra scene with Bernard Herrmann, or Herman, <laughs> who actually oh, yeah. did a number of his movies. He did the soundtracks for a number of his movies, and it was actually in the film, the second film. Yes, conducting. Yeah, I mean, in, in the second film, that's a little elaborate set piece sequence that goes on for quite a bit. In the original, it kind of feels a little truncated. You know, it does. It, there's, you know, he didn't have too much of a budget for that first film. You know, he did it where he took full advantage of color and having money, and and uh, so yeah, I think as he said in the Hitchcock Truffaut book, the first film was he said the film of a talented amateur, and the second film was a professional. That was his term anyway. I you know honestly, I like the first film a bit better just because Peter Lorre is so brilliant in it, and it's a great villain. He's a great villain in it, and a great villain in a Hitchcock movie is always good. Whereas he, he doesn't really have a great villain for the second film. You don't really remember the villains as much. For Peter Lorre in the first man who knew too much, that's one of the best performances in all of Hitchcock, I think, because he's so cuddly. You know, he's a killer, and yet he's very likable and cute, and and yet he'll stick a knife in you, and then he'll still be cute. You know, that's I, you know, archetypal Hitchcock that type of Peter Lorre sort of thing. He's a perfect Hitchcock actor. We talked a little bit, or actually quite a bit, about the issues that he had with some actors, particularly those who, I guess the best way of putting them were movie stars, or stars is the way to put it, They, you know, that they took over the screen all the time. And what were some of the other issues he would have with some actors? I mean, it wasn't just that aspect of it. Obviously, less talent would be one of the reasons, but... What were some of the issues that he had with with some actors? Well, I think the the thing that comes to mind uh, right away is he worked with Charles Lawton in a movie called Jamaica Inn right before he went to America. And Charles Lawton was a great actor, but Charles Lawton was someone. A Lawton movie was a Lawton movie, and he was you know a kind of prototypical method actor in that you know he compared coming up with the characterization to a pregnancy, you know, and he he had all these things of I, I'm going to play an Italian, and so I need to listen to Italian music and look at painting. Yeah, and it was all very. You know, he was the uh, authority. He was the artist in his films, like Betty Davis. If someone was very dominant like that, Hitchcock really couldn't make use of them because it was like the actor themselves were, the way, were, were they were calling the shots. And I think Lawton, Betty Davis, people like that, they worked best with directors who were kind of hired hand who could hold their hand or, you know, d- direct them in such a way that you know, they have control and power. Hitchcock, you know, he liked actors who were, you know, he, he could use them and hopefully, you know, flip their images on their heads. I think the only time really he let an actor just act is, you know, the third movie he made with Ingrid Bergman called Under Capricorn, which has all these very long takes. He lets her do this amazing confession monologue that goes on for almost 10 minutes. It isn't a cut. Ingrid Bergman does this long monologue and there's no cutaway to anything. She's talking about uh, you know, the past and it, the camera, all it does is follow her as she talks. And it's riveting because she's a great actress 
and you know he lets her take over. And I think it's partly because you know he was just crazy about her, and you know he he was fine just letting her call the shots for him in that particular case. But I think Notorious is probably you know it isn't probably it is the best movie they made together because it's a it's a real Hitchcock movie. He let her in under Capricorn kind of act away, but you know in general he didn't like acting for its own sake. He wasn't big on that. Now. Well, I guess my other question then, Marlon, as we're, you know, been talking, what would you say, I mean, I know this is an easy, you know, a sort of a strange way of getting to this. In his British period, what's the film that you think or you feel or films that he was most successful in what he, in you feel, and what he wanted to do uh, with with acting um, during that or that first period? You know, I think that there's a real... When he makes, you know, the first man who knew too much was kind of a comeback for him. He had been, you know, it was the, it was the first real Hitchcock movie in the sense that we know about him. I, I think that the Peter Laurie in that movie, I think that's the first great performance in a Hitchcock movie. And then we have Robert Donat in The 39 Steps. We have Sylvia Sidney in Sabotage. Uh, so, so I think it's that golden period of those those British movies. That's when he gets his first great performances out of actors. Whereas I think in the silent period and the early talky period, he's working with actors who, you know, honestly, a lot of the time they're a little weak. Um, they a lot of uh, the women in particular were just in movies for a few years and then retired. There's quite a lot of that. Whereas Sylvia Sidney, who's in Sabotage. She was a real actor, and she she had a long career. I think if you remember, she was in Beetlejuice, and she was in so she took her craft very seriously. Whereas before the man who knew too much, he was working with a lot of actors who were in movies just for a little while, and they were somewhat inadequate. And he got very frustrated with that. That was another thing of him being frustrated in England with these inadequate actors. Or then he would have the big theater actors like John Gielgud who didn't take it seriously. So I think, though, that Peter Laurie in The Man Who Knew Too Much, Robert Donat in The 39 Steps, and especially Sylvia Sidney, who's an American in Sabotage, those are the first really great performances in Hitchcock's movies. And I think it, that's why you know, it was this thing of him wanting to go to America, because he could work with more acts like that in America. And, of course, then the, the American films, many of them are more well-known, uh, but... Other than the ones we've already talked about, are there any of the American films that you feel like it's either underrated for the acting or that he was able to get exactly, you know, that they they tended to be so well? I mean, they, they, they show Hitchcock as Hitchcock. I mean, like I say, I know we've already talked about a number of them that, you, you know, that you particularly are hap- were, were, were satisfied with. But, I mean, is there anything else, maybe one that's less known? Well, you know, I think I had mentioned The Wrong Man before. The Wrong Man is, you know, it's it's a it's a Hitchcock movie that's known, but yeah, you know, it's never going to be popular because it's so incredibly depressing. There is no more depressing movie than The Wrong Man, and yet, I, you know, I think it's one of his very greatest movies. And really, I think more attention should be paid to what Henry Fonda does in that movie. Uh, Henry Fonda in that movie is he's just heartbreaking. And Vera Miles, 
who plays his wife, uh, who she, she has mental illness and she starts to break down because he's been wrongly accused. She also does, you know, a, a beautiful, you know, heartbreaking performance. Those two performances in that movie, I think it is somewhat underrated in that, you know, it isn't, it isn't this, this thing of, oh, it's an entertainment, you know, or there's a, it's, it's, there's no humor, there's no, it, it's, it's really an ordeal, you know, and it's something that could happen to anyone. And you know, it, it's a, the two of Henry Fonda and Vera Miles and The Wrong Man, I think as far as acting goes and what he wants from actors, I think that's a great example of what he wants from actors and, and, uh, and got it out of them. And then, you know, of course, on his television show, that's something that I wasn't as familiar with as I was with the films. I actually went, I had written quite a bit of the book when I'd seen the famous uh, episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but I hadn't really looked at, you know, Hitchcock himself as a screen presence in all those intros and outros he did. And then also the actors who were on the show. Um, and so that was a very interesting kind of thing to, to try to write a bit about that. The actors uh, on his television show. The funny, the um, funny part about it is the television. The television in. show is where you actually see his humor at its most obvious <laughs> in his intros. Oh yeah, and especially in the outros, when quite a lot of the times he'll 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 take, he'll make a humorous kind of twist, which a lot of it is is still a kind of censorship, where you know the someone who gets away with murder. He has to humorously say, "Well, she did. He, he didn't get away with it, or something like that." Um, but I, looking at him very closely as an actor himself, thinking of him playing the part of Hitchcock, which was his great part, I think as I looked at all of these uh, episodes and looked at him closely in particular, I felt like I got you know an idea of what he was after and, and what and what interested him. Uh, in acting by viewing him, by viewing what he was doing for the camera, I thought it was actually very revealing. And I think a lot of people, of course, he became, you know, really famous because of that television show and because of uh, introducing all of those episodes. You know, people became aware of him, even though they had been before, but you know, he brought it to a new level. Well, the good thing is, is a lot of the, you know, they're pretty much available for viewing. Uh, in various ways. So that's the good thing is that maybe someone who hasn't thought about his, that, those, that period, you know, those uh, episodes of the TV show might go back and view those because, uh, as you say, uh, it's a different side, but it's also, a, you know, continues to be an interesting side of his craft. So oh, absolutely. now that the book is finished, uh, obviously you're continuing your other writing, your article writing and reviews, but um, do you have other future projects in mind for to go back to another book, or are you still just ruminating? Well, I actually, I'm I'm doing a lot of research now uh, on I, there's, a, there's a book I'd like to write on popular music. Uh, it's a little bit of a departure for me. Popular mu music of the uh, standards of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and so I've been doing you know, a lot of research on that. And I'm not quite sure what uh, it's going to turn into, but I'm just doing a lot of research on uh, the people who wrote the songs and people who sang the songs, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, people like that. So so that that's the new project that I'm working on. And then I've got a, I had a 
first novel that was published in 2018 called That Was Something. Um, and I enjoyed doing that very much. And so I, I am also working on a second novel. Uh, and uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I think a lot of things are in the air because of the pandemic. I think most people had things that were happening you know, earlier in the year that had to be put on hold uh, because of that. You know, we're, we're in a period of transition now ourselves. And hopefully when we come out the other side of it, there will be something there for us, something new. <laughs> and I, th I also think things are going to be different. And some of the things that have happened because of the pandemic may end up being in all kinds of ways. And I'm not specifically talking about film or, or anything else, but I mean, things on the other end are going to be different permanently. So uh, hopefully the, we, see, we have seen signs, though, that there are people out there who are still figuring out how to do things. And, and you can see the ingenuity of people that they've come up with ways to continue their work. Uh, you know, as far as movies and TV and, and other things. And it's great to know that uh, um, people, we got some smart enough people out there who can figure out how to do it. Right. I mean, because I did a lot of film reviewing for The Wrap and uh, other places. And really, honestly, that has kind of dried up around March because there aren't any films to review, you know. But you know, what's interesting is there's a writer named Nick Pinkerton. I don't know if you know him, but I think he's maybe the best all-around writer on film that we have. I think he's just, you know, terrific. And what he did when all of this, you know, film comment you know, has stopped, a lot of this has stopped, he had enough followers uh, on Twitter that he did a substack. And he, you know, he's, it's the sort of thing where he does you know, original content. And a lot of it is, or actually all of it is free. But he says, if you can, you know, a tip or you can subscribe, then, you know, go ahead. And I think he's you know, done that pretty successfully. So I think this thing of talking about new ways of doing things, I think, you know, you know, he's doing something like that, that I think has been very successful for him so far. And so if you write about film, you know, that it might be, uh, it might be something for you. And, and that's a good thing in that you're independent. You aren't pulled into some organization or some, which you know, might not give you, you know, the, he has great freedom in what he writes about and he has an audience for it. And so, you know, why shouldn't he benefit directly without, you know, he doesn't need, you know, necessarily, we don't need necessarily institutional support for what we're doing if we can find the people who enjoy it, you know, anyway. Well, I appreciate your time, Dan. I agree with you that while there are many books about Hitchcock, you still came up with one that is an, a different way of viewing him or an additional way, and I hope that people uh, use it sort of as a guide when they dive back in or especially, you know, those that maybe look at the films that we've talked about that are lesser known or, you know, but uh, will continue to you to help. Your book definitely will help them get a better sense of Hitchcock as you know f with acting and and its importance so I want to thank you for your time I hope the book continues to do well and uh, I hope you do well all right Th thanks very much for having me on Joel it was fun to talk to you thanks thank very you much. my great thanks to Dan Callahan I hope that his book will help Hitchcock fans develop another way to analyze his work this is Joel Cherney and I will be back soon with more new books and film a podcast series on the New Books Network.